0: The Mayo Clinic is world-renowned for medical excellence in cardiovascular care, but how in the world did all this happen in Rochester, Minnesota? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, John Russell, and today we'll be exploring the story behind the Mayo Clinic with author Dr. Bruce Fye in his new book, Caring for the Heart. Dr. Fye, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Dr. Russell.
0: So who was the original Dr. Mayo?
1: Well, the first Dr. Mayo was William Worrell Mayo, who was born in England in 1819 and emigrated to the United States in 1946 and moved around quite a bit getting medical training in this country and then settled in Rochester, Minnesota and opened a practice here in 1864.
0: And he started out as a primary care doctor and then kind of developed some surgical skills later?
1: Well, he did. In fact, uh, that's right. He started out as a general practitioner doing a little bit of surgery. And of course, this was before the age of antiseptic or aseptic surgery. So the types of operations were very limited. He did develop a reputation for actually doing uh, ovariectomy, which was a dangerous procedure in the 1870s. So he did have a reputation for uh, surgical treatment, but primarily he was a general practitioner.
0: So how did he end up in Rochester, Minnesota?
1: It's an interesting story. Uh, He wound up in Rochester, frankly, as a result of the uh, Civil War. Abraham Lincoln posted him to Rochester to be uh, an examining surgeon for the uh, troops that came from the southern half of Minnesota.
0: So with some of the local nuns in the area, he, he started a hospital?
1: This is really related to a natural disaster. In uh, 1883, in August, there was a F5 tornado, which is the most serious tornado that exists, and it destroyed about a third of Rochester, killed about two dozen people, and injured uh, many, many more. There was no hospital in Rochester at that point, but there was an order of Catholic sisters. that uh, They were teachers, and the uh, Mother Superior, who was in charge of the Order of Nuns, went to the senior Dr. Mayo, And I might just digress at this moment. He had one son who just joined him in practice, having graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School, and he had another son who was preparing to enter medical school. Mother Alfred was her name. She approached the old Dr. Mayo, as he was known, and said, if you will take charge of a hospital, we will build it for you. And he was skeptical, because at that point, Rochester had a population of about 5,000, and there were no general hospitals outside of the Twin Cities of Minnesota. So he thought the city was too small, but she persisted. And in fact, in 1889, uh, they opened St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester, the same year that Johns Hopkins Hospital opened in Baltimore.
0: I thought it was interesting you wrote, I think during that period of time, there was about a 2,000% increase in the number of hospitals in the United States, something like that?
1: Well, it was really very dramatic. Between uh, During sort of the last third of the, t- of the 19th century, uh, the number of hospitals increased dramatically from just a few hundred to about 4,000. And this was driven primarily by the advent of uh, antiseptic surgical techniques, which made it safer for doctors to operate inside the abdomen, something that was really almost prohibitively dangerous before this. And then progressively during the 1890s, what was termed aseptic surgery. And that's that's a type of, uh, sort of a technology that is designed to prevent an infection from happening in the first place. And we recognize it today as involving rubber gloves and masks and sterilizers and all of this stuff. But the key reason that drove the development of hospital was in fact that uh, surgeons could begin to operate in smaller hospitals using these procedures that reduce the likelihood of infection and therefore reduce the likelihood of death.
0: So Dr. Mayo's sons were both surgeons, correct?
1: Yes, they came into, uh, they really, it was a matter of context, context, context. They joined their father's successful practice at just the time when it was possible for ambitious general practitioners, uh, if they had access to a hospital, to transform themselves into surgeons. And the two brothers were extraordinarily ambitious, They went off and got uh, specialty training in New York City and Chicago, and and these were generally courses limited to several days to a few weeks. But they uh, came back, and they had a state-of-the-art hospital staffed by sisters whose, frankly, their entire lives revolved around uh, the care of patients.
0: And they really became kind of world-class surgeons, kind of contemporaries of Halstead, correct?
1: Yes. In fact, it's quite... Striking uh, how many patients came from a great distance to, uh, to have surgery performed by the Mayo Brothers, and frankly, they did all of the surgery until the very early 20th century. In fact, in 1905, there were more operations performed at St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester, which had a population then of 7,000, than were performed at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, which had a population of half a million.
0: And I think it's very interesting to kind of compare and contrast uh, the Brothers Mayo to Halstead, who Halstead seemed to uh, be a a fairly hands-off surgeon, even though he got exorbitant fees and things like that, that a lot of his residents seemed to do a lot of his work, where the Mayos really seemed to kind of own their practice, correct?
1: I think you phrased it very, very well. They were deeply committed to the care of patients and, uh, in fact, did participate themselves in all of the operations. They had a sole first assistant for several years. So unlike the situation at Johns Hopkins or traditional academic medical centers where there would be a rotating series of residents that might go through for three months at a time and then they have to start to retrain them, part of the the Mayo magic, if you will, in terms of of the safety of having surgery here was the high patient volume and the fact that they did, in fact, uh, have surgery by surgeons with an extraordinary experience and an extraordinary support structure.
0: So where is Rochester, Minnesota?
1: Rochester is in southeastern Minnesota, about 85 miles uh, south and a bit east of the Twin Cities. It's an isolated community, certainly then it was, and that was also part of the success because really uh, they didn't have nearby competition and they were providing care that couldn't be provided by the general practitioners that were located in southwestern Wisconsin southern minnesota and uh, northeastern iowa but then they were also getting patients that came from quite a distance in fact one of the four doctors that was uh, first faculty at johns hopkins hospital howard kelly came to the mayo clinic in 1911 to have surgery so rather than stay at johns hopkins he came to mayo clinic so that says something about the uh, geographic reach and the confidence that uh, even professionals had in, in undergoing operations here
0: so when was the mayo clinic established
1: well, it's all a matter of definition. I think that uh, probably the most the most convenient way to define the Mayo Clinic date. They built a building. In fact, it was a very large building with 300 rooms. It was the the most it was the largest facility, outpatient facility for uh, healthcare in the United States at this point. It was opened in 1914, and over the doorway, uh, carved in stone, was Mayo Clinic, and that was when the facility became known as the Mayo Clinic. Prior to that time, Mayo Clinic really referred to uh, sort of watching the Mayo Brothers operate at St. Mary's Hospital.
0: So what were the core tenets of the Mayo Clinic?
1: I think the thing that really set it apart, uh, it was the first multi-specialty group practice. And of course, by that, I mean that the, the Mayo Brothers wanted to be surgeons So they hired diagnosticians. Now we would call them internists, and they were called internists shortly after the turn of the 20th century, 19th to 20th century. But then they also hired other types of medical and surgical specialists to complement their care. They hired uh, technicians to do some of the work uh, that in other institutions might have been done by interns. So once again, there was proficiency, there was high volume, there was repetition, uh, and all of this led to a concept of team care it was very much in evidence here in the early 20th century and many uh, professional visitors, physicians and surgeons remarked about that. And, so, and One from Canada said in 1906, first of all he characterized the Mayo Clinic as the clinic in the cornfields which I thought was sort of cute, but he also emphasized uh, the concept of specialization and cooperation and that really was one of the hallmarks. It was putting the patient first This wasn't a traditional academic medical center. There was no medical school here until 1972. It really was all about patient care and the training of specialists.
0: You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're joined by Dr. Bruce Fye, author of Caring for the Heart, Mayo Clinic, and the Rise of Specialization. So transitioning, so how did cardiology arise at the Mayo?
1: Well, cardiology arose at Mayo Clinic really the same way it arose in most, uh, major medical centers, and that really related to the first 20th century technology pertinent to the care of patients with heart disease, and that was the electrocardiograph. It was invented very early in the 20th century, and it was started, it was introduced into major academic medical centers, uh, between sort of 1910 and 1915. Mayo had to wait until they built the 1914 building to install the electrocardiograph because it was very sensitive and it required a concrete foundation and, and things of this sort. But the electrocardiograph really triggered or sort of encouraged uh, a subset of internal medicine physicians to focus on the care of patients with heart disease. So it was through the electrocardiograph that a physician at Mayo, an internist, developed an interest in patients with heart disease, and then a section or a special division of Mayo devoted to heart disease was created in 1923, which was really very early in terms of the development of an identified uh, group of doctors uh, caring for patients with heart disease. Of course, it was in the context of Mayo Clinic, which was already evolving into a very substantial multi-specialty group practice.
0: So then as cardiology progresses in the United States, I was really shocked at the first cardiac cath someone did on themselves.
1: Well, this was, of course, this was actually in Germany, and it was a surgical resident, Werner Forstmann, who did, in fact, uh, perform a cardiac catheterization of his right heart. Uh, the thing he also did was he documented it by x-ray, and he published it. So it's, it's quite clear that he does deserve the credit for this, although it wasn't really developed until World War II when the technology was thought to be useful in trying to solve the, the really potentially life-threatening and potentially fatal uh, consequences of shock on the battlefield. So it it was, and this was actually just one of many things that evolved out of World War II efforts to try to save lives on the battlefield. Cardiac catheterization evolved in that context. Of course, antibiotics uh, the, were not developed for that purpose, but were accelerated in terms of their manufacture and distribution.
0: I I think your stories related to the early days of of cardiac surgery were really very very interesting, very compelling, is is how sick some of, mostly these were children with congenital heart disease, how sick they were and actually how many of them died.
1: Well, this is right. And I think today, you know, if you look at the numbers of survivors, you'd say, my goodness, how could they ever justify operating on these children? And they were children with congenital heart disease because that was the first type of surgery that was developed. Uh open-heart surgery, which was invented in the early 1950s, but did not become standard until 1955. And in 1955, there were only two institutions on the planet that had open-heart operations scheduled on a regular basis. That was the University of Minnesota and Mayo Clinic. And the first patients, uh, interestingly enough, oftentimes uh, these were really small children who couldn't give informed consent. But their parents were willing to subject them to operations that were really in a state of development because they knew that their outlook uh, without any kind of intervention was very, very grim. I mean, the, the life expectancy for these children was often limited to weeks or months or at most a very few short years. So the trade off was, you know, being part of literally uh, an experiment to improve the technology of open-heart surgery, and uh, then to hopefully be able to develop it in ways that it could could help many more patients rather than those first brave children and, and risk-taking parents uh, willing to have their children undergo operations in the hopes that they would live better and longer lives.
0: And I, and I think the book is so filled with so many other kind of tales of electrophysiology and preventive cardiology and the development of intensive care units and certainly it's a great read for anyone who's really interested in really the last hundred years if you if you look at it from kind of I guess the EKG was about 1914 the last hundred years in uh, an American medicine as we've really kind of seen and is there one kind of lasting point that in in putting this book together is is really the thing that sticks most with you
1: well thing I would like to say is I I tried to tell a bunch of stories, and I've been told by many individuals who've read it, and the individuals that wrote the advance for praise statements, really did get the feeling that it is a series of interconnected stories. I think there there are a number of surprises in there. Although I've done research in the history of cardiology and cardiac surgery for more than three decades. I was surprised to find that many of the things that have been published, and some of which I published, were frankly not correct. When you went to the archival sources, and one of these relates to the invention of coronary angiography, imaging the coronary arteries with a catheter and dye, and that's really almost exclusively a Cleveland Clinic story. And that's one of the other points I would make, is although Mayo Clinic is woven throughout this entire book, I do emphasize the contributions to the development of cardiology, diagnostic techniques, and the development of surgical techniques that came from not just other institutions in the United States, but Western Europe and all, frankly, many, many parts of the world. So it's not just the Mayo Clinic story, not just an American story, but it's a story of how the care of heart patients changed over primarily the second half of the 20th century. And I might just mention that that was stimulated in this country very much by the uh, development of the National Institutes of Health and the terrific amount of money that went to academic medical centers, and then also the introduction of Medicare, which was implemented in 1966, that helped hospitals acquire equipment and uh, allowed the diffusion of these technologies and these, these new techniques from major academic medical centers into large community hospitals around the country.
0: Well, a wonderful read. Dr. Fye, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm your host, John Russell. To listen to this show or others in the series, visit ReachMD.com.